So um, a few obje objectives, it's uh, also listed in the program. So number one is to identify risk factors that are associated with the most common cancers. Uh, number two, review updated cancer screening guidelines, specifically for colon and breast cancer. Um, those are kind of my areas of expertise. Um, and then also discuss um, patient and physician factors that's our, that may affect cancer-related outcomes. And then finally, um, last but not least, appreciate the physician's eternal impact on a cancer patient. Okay, so before we start, um, how many of you in this room know someone who is diagnosed with cancer or you're, you yourself um, are a cancer survivor, if you can raise your hand. All right, I think most of us in this room, and if you haven't raised your hand, I, I'm pretty sure that you will um, very soon, um, just because cancer is, the incidence of cancer is growing so rapidly. And so just to go over a little bit of uh, statistics, I won't bore you too much with statistics, but you can see that the, <coughs> the death rates um, in response to cancer are on the rise. And heart disease is still number one, has been for a long time, but cancer has, has reached it and probably will surpass it in the next five, 10 years. And you can see here in terms of the incidence of death, you can see heart disease kind of went up and then has slowly been coming down with largely because of improved education um, and on diet and smoking in particular. But you can see here the incidence of cancer has steadily risen uh, almost three times from 1950. And that looks like it's continuing to rise. So in the United States, the good news is that our, our expected lifespan is, is increasing. And so the average American is expected to live 78.7 years. The bad news is that the longer you live, the higher the likelihood you will probably get cancer at some point. Um, and we know that right now almost 40% of men and women um, in this country will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their life. Okay, so that's over one-third. So if you look to your right and left, um, one of you um, may be diagnosed with cancer. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of cancers, especially that are diagnosed early, they do have good outcomes but um, it's still something that is very serious um, that we need to take into consideration. And we know that that's, that number is growing, and <clears throat> in the next 10 years, we expect that four and, a half more, four and a half million more people will be living with cancer, and by 2024, it'll be 19 million people um, will have cancer, and that's, that'll be almost 10% of, of our population in the United States. And there is a silver lining to that because less people may be dying um, of cancer overall relatively, but there will be more people living with cancer, which makes cancer more of a chronic disease. Um, and then we'll be faced with the, the issue and the um, challenge of managing this chronic disease long term. So a brief overview, many of you probably already know this, but in terms of the most common cancers, so the most common Leading sites of new cancer in men, number one, prostate, number two, lung, number three, colorectal. And that hasn't changed in a while. For female, it's very similar, except instead of prostate, it's breast cancer, then lung, then colorectal cancer. But in terms of the deadliest cancers, uh, lung cancer is by far and away the most deadly, both in male and female. Um, colorectal cancer, number two, breast cancer, number two for women prostate cancer for males, and colorectal cancer for females. So I was, you know, as I was 
thinking about what to talk about uh, this uh, today, um, you know, there are a lot of parallels between cancer and, and leprosy. Um, back in biblical times, um, leprosy was a very, very serious illness, a very difficult illness to treat. Um, they didn't have any cures. And in the Bible, it only mentions a few times where people were actually cured um, of leprosy. But there are a couple of examples. Um, for example, Miriam, um, Moses' sister, Gehazi, um, and the leper that's, that approached Jesus, who the theme of our, our conference uh, this year is based on, and also um, Captain Naaman. And if you look at the stories in the Bible of leprosy, and if you compare it to cancer in this day and age, in 2017, we find that um, there are some stigmas associated with cancer similar to leprosy. And one is that, you know, maybe a result of, you know, people's choices or actions, but it can't isolate people. As Miriam was kind of isolated outside the Israelite camp after she was um, struck in with leprosy. Um, as in the case of Gehazi, the leprosy was passed, was given to him, and it was passed on to his children and their children for generations. And we know that there's a genetic component to cancer as well. Um, it causes desperation. Um, many people still believe that cancer is a fatal diagnosis, a lethal diagnosis. Um, and, but now we know that it's more of a chronic disease. It can be a chronic disease in many cases. Um, but probably the most fascinating is that you know, cancer does not discriminate. Yes, there are disparities in cancer outcomes, but whether you're rich, poor, old, young, um, you know, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, it affects all of us. Um, and I'll, I'd like to go into some of the factors that may play into that, but I want to, you know, say that there's really still a lot that we don't understand about cancer and why we get cancer. So as humans, we like to kind of, we, we want everything to make sense in our life. So we like to have everything kind of fall into kind of cause and effect, and we want an explanation for why things happen, why there's suffering, why there's cancer. And so... And that, that's illustrated in the story um, when Jesus was walking with the disciples and they saw a blind man on the side of the road and the disciples asked their master, they say, Master, who sinned? Was it this blind man or his parents? Right? And basically they were asking, was his illness a result of his choices, his sin, or was it somehow kind of genetic? Right? And it's similar in cancer. We ask, when we hear that someone has cancer, I think for me, the first thing I tend to think of is, well, what were their lifestyle choices like? Or did their parents or their family members have cancer too? We do know that there are risk factors associated with cancer. And so I don't want to, um, I want you to leave here very clear on that point. And I think I'm preaching to the choir here. Most of us here are very, very well versed in that. But I think science is catching up to what we have already known for a long time. And so tobacco use is still the number one um, uh, risk factor for cancer. But coming in a close second is obesity. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, later. There are infections, viruses, and bacteria that can predispose to cancer. Not so much here in the United States, but overseas. But here, I like this category. There's a question mark. It says unknown. And there's still many cancers out there, we just really don't have a good explanation of why it affected a certain individual. 
We do know that exercise, or lack thereof, plays an important role, as does diet. There's occupational exposure, such as um, um, asbestos for mesothelioma, some other chemicals um, in liver cancer. Alcohol obviously plays a role in liver cancer, esophageal cancer. Um, there are reproductive factors associated with breast and ovarian cancer. UV lights, obviously, in skin cancers and melanoma. Environmental pollutants and even prescription drugs. There are some studies that link um, some prescription drugs to cancer, um, and particularly narcotics, which we have a huge epidemic and a crisis in this country in terms of narcotic use. And those patients with cancer, they tend to have, there's a, there are studies that show that there's a worse outcome in those patients who are um, taking narcotic medications, and we still don't understand completely why. But like I said, we've all known this, right? So we've known that lifestyle is, um, is important and plays a role in our overall health. And um, I think, again, medicine is kind of catching up and, and finally validating what, what um, uh, Sister White has shared with us um, over you know, 100 years ago. So this is one very fascinating study that was published about two years, two and a half years ago in Science, which is one of the premier um, scientific journals. And they basically looked at, they tried to explain how, um, you know, try to attribute cancer risk to ex external factors or intrinsic factors based on, it's kind of complicated, but based on, you know, how tumor cells divide. And there are cells in our body that divide more rapidly than others, and there's, there's cells that divide less. And they found a correlation in terms of the incidence of cancer in specific body parts based on the cell division. And basically what they concluded was that they said a third of cancer risk is attributed to environmental factors or inherited predisposition. So they said only a third um, was a result of what they called bad luck. Now, that seems like a lot, but actually it's probably a lot more. And there was a lot of controversy in the public health world regarding this study. And there was actually a rebuttal um, study that was done, used um, similar techniques, but they kind of improved on it. And they actually found that it's not just 30%, but it's up to 70 to 90% of cancers can be attributed to lifestyle, diet, environmental factors that are not just bad luck. And so that really just opened the eyes of a lot of um, uh, cancer researchers and clinicians in this field. So that has really kind of changed as a dramatic shift from kind of what we were practicing before. So we know that in lifestyle, exercise um, plays an important role. Um, and I don't want to go through the new start with all of you, but um, we know that hypoxia on a cellular level um, increases the risk of cancer progression and cancer metastasis. And so in this study, um, in, it was actually a nature paper in Nature Oncogenesis, they found that hypoxia drives malignant progression in cancers, resulting in poor survival through resistance to therapy and increased metastatic potential. And and one of the areas of research that I'm interested in is metastasis, because patients don't die of the cancer in their breast or in their skin, but they die when that tumor has spread to other parts of the body and starts taking over organs and causing organ failure. 
And one of the, one of the most interesting mechanisms for cancer metastasis is related to hypoxia. Um, the tumors kind of thrive in kind of a hypoxic environment, and it kind of causes the release of tumor cells into the bloodstream and to various um, parts of the body. So we know that smoking also plays a role, um, but the good news is that smoking actually is on the decline thanks to you know, concerted public health efforts, uh, government efforts, um, and lung cancer as a result is also dropping. And you can see here, this is a nice graph kind of illustrating the rate of cigarette consumption in our country and how the rate of male and female lung cancer is very, very symmetric to the rate of, of cigarette consumption. And you can see here, there's actually about a 20-year lag between the peak of cigarette consumption and the peak of lung cancer. And so, you know, there are obviously patients that smoke for their whole life and they never will get lung cancer, but it's especially important in the younger years, in your 20s and 30s, that smoking will affect them not when they're young, but when they're older. And so that progression can take about 20 to 30 years on average. We know that diet is important, um, and especially the, there's been a lot of research in red meat and processed meat. And just two years ago, the World Health Organization published um, their findings. Um, they did a very, very exhaustive study looking at the effect of meat on cancer risk. And they found that eating 50 grams of processed meat every day, such as hot dogs, bacon, etc., cetera, um, increased the risk of colorectal cancer by 18%. And also for red meat in general, there was increased risk of colorectal, pancreatic, and prostate cancer. And they went even as far as labeling processed meat as a carcinogen. And so it is now officially a carcinogen. So that's something to consider. Um, and finally, like I said, it's taken us many, many years. Um, this, this should have been, you know, hopefully, you know, well known by now, but um, finally we're catching up to what we've known. And, and our Adventist Health Study, obviously um, done at Loma Linda and um, other sites, it corroborates that fact. We know that those who consume more fruits and vegetables, they have decreased risk of colon cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, and other cancers. Those who eat meat frequently um, in their meals, there is a significant um, higher risk of colon cancers, bladder cancers, and ovarian cancers. And that's just in this study. Other studies have shown links to other cancers um, as well. But now probably the biggest problem that we have in our country is the obesity epidemic. And you can see here that overweight, you know, BMI from you know, 25 to 30 has essentially stayed the same. But if you look at obesity, BMI 35 to 40, that has dramatically increased in the past 40 to 50 years. And then extreme obesity, BMI above 40, is slowly on the climb. And why does that matter? Because we know that there are at least 13 cancers that have been shown to be linked to obesity, uh, namely esophageal cancer, breast cancer, and that's typically after menopause, pancreas cancer, liver cancer, kidney cancer, 
colon cancer, and uterine cancer, as among others. And so finally, I also wanted to touch a little bit on genetics and the environment. And you know, in the Bible, you know, it talks about the sins of the parents and how it gets passed on to, the ch to their children, to the third and fourth generation. And you know, that's, that verse is kind of stuck in my mind, and there is so much truth in that. Um, we know that there are cancer genes that have been identified, and you know, obviously those are fairly rare. Those account for maybe less than 10% of, of um, cancers. But there are a lot of things that we still don't understand about genetics and what we call epigenetics. Basically, the genes themselves may not change, but there's, the body has ways to modulate the expression of certain genes, and that can alter the ability of the, the genes to be passed down to the children. And over time, the genes can change, and they can develop a lot of these mutations that can predispose to cancer. And so, you know, there are people who may do everything right. They may eat right, exercise, do everything that they're supposed to. But because of these genetic predispositions, they are still at increased risk of, a, of getting cancer. And there are many different genes, many that we still don't really know for sure their significance to cancer. But we label genes based on the variance and its penetrance, basically how, how strongly it's able to um, uh, become or express cancer in any, indiv any specific individual. And so majority of the mutations that we find in the, the genome of humans or in these tumors, we find there are a lot of common variants, but a majority of them don't become cancer, which is the good news. There are kind of variants with modern penetrance where a little bit more of them may become cancer. But really the ones that you've probably heard of are the, the high penetrance genes, such as the breast cancer mutation gene, the BRCA mutation genes, or, or the P53 mutation genes, or the P10. And those are much more rare, but a, a significant number of patients with those gene mutations will end up getting cancer. And like I said, they only, they only make up about 10% of cancers. This is breast cancer in particular. Um, but we know that patients with a BRCA mutation gene, they, can, they have about an 80% risk, 60-80% um, risk of developing breast or ovarian cancer in their lifetime. And so those are things to, to keep in mind as we counsel these patients. So now we know all this information. So what do we do about it? And I think for me, I like to talk to patients and kind of break these risk factors up into what I call non-modifiable and modifiable risk factors. And non-modifiable are things that they really can't do anything about. And this is specifically in breast cancer. There's a, I see a lot of breast cancer patients. And obviously, female, age, race, um, family or personal history, you can't really do anything about. So there's really no use worrying about you know, what to do about that. Um, However, if they do have, you know, genetic predisposition, if they had a history of radiation therapy to the chest, those are patients that I counsel to, you know, they may require more frequent screening or closer follow-up because they may be at increased risk of breast cancer. But these are the modifiable or quasi-modifiable risk factors. So number one is, you know, breastfeeding has been associated with decreased risk of breast cancer. Um, early childbirth has been associated with um, 
decreased risk of breast cancer, but that's probably not very modifiable. Um, but hormone therapy, there are links of hormone therapy with breast cancer, but studies show that if you stop hormone replacement therapy um, or oral contraceptive therapy, within three years, your risk goes back down to normal. But the big three that I really you know, counsel patients on and talk to them about are obesity, exercise, and limiting alcohol. Now, ideally, you know, I don't tell patients you have to stop drinking completely. I do recommend it. But studies have shown that if you drink less than three drinks a week, then your risk of cancer, breast cancer, significantly decreases. In terms of exercise, it's three, four times a week, about an hour, 30 minutes to an hour of, of good, vigorous aerobic exercise. In obesity, if you can get down to kind of normal BMI between 20 and 24, those three in combination probably will do much more for decreasing breast cancer risk and breast cancer mortality than any of the treatments out there. Now, what about colon cancer? So the same. So there's non-modifiable and modifiable risks. And again, personal family history, race, inflammatory bowel disease is a big one, and I see the incidence of that has been increasing significantly. Um, and diabetes also has been linked to colon cancer and also prior radiation. So specifically, patients who've had radiation treatment for prostate cancer, there's a slightly increased risk of developing rectal cancer because of the radiation in that area. And again, that's usually about 10, 20 years down the road. But those that are modifiable, smoking, uh, limiting red meat or, just li or eliminating, eliminating completely, and again, the same three, obesity, exercise, and alcohol intake. But again, you know, you will see patients, and there may be even some people here in the room who do all these things, yet still get cancer. And so what do we do about those patients? And, you know, I tell them, I don't know. Um, and there, sometimes we don't have good answers for that. And going back to the, the story about Jesus and his disciples, you know, they said, you know, what happened? Why did this man become blind? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, you know, neither did this man sin or his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And so what I take away from that is when I see patients with cancer, you know, whether or not they're smokers or drinkers or they're overweight or what have you, I think first and foremost as physicians, we need to show compassion um, and meet them where they are. Because a lot of the times, they already feel guilty. Um, they already know. Uh, a lot of times they'll ask me, you know, why did this happen? Was it because, you know, I didn't exercise or because I smoked, you know? And they're already beating themselves up enough. And I don't think as physicians we need to do any more, you know, bludgeoning uh, on them at that time. I think there's a time for education. But I think first and foremost we need to be compassionate. And then treat. And I'm not going to go too much into treatment today. But there are very good treatments uh, for cancer. Um, and I think there's a role for you know, using both um, the kind of um, conventional medical therapies as well as um, the alternative um, lifestyle therapies out there. But I have seen patients who you know, decided they want to go solely with you know, lifestyle therapy. And um, I've heard of some good outcomes. And I've also heard of you know, uh, many bad outcomes as well. And so I think first and foremost, we need to understand that, you know, really God is the ultimate healer. 
And me as a surgical oncologist, I'm the first to tell you that I know that there are limitations in, in the medical treatments, uh, especially in cancer therapy. And it's not, a perfect, it's not a perfect solution that we have. I want to shift gears a little bit um, and go on to screening, because I think first and foremost, prevention, risk reduction is where we should be, I think, um, focusing most of our energy. But after that, we really should be advocating for screening, because if cancer is caught early, it can be treated, and patients will have a very, very good outcome, especially in breast and colon cancer. But when I talk about screening, you know, I think there's a lot of us who are hearers of the word, but not doers, right? And a lot of our patients, the, the likewise, they're, they're the same. And you, you have to do it. There's no shortcut. You can't just think about doing it. You have to do it. <clears throat> and in terms of breast cancer, there are updated guidelines from the American Cancer Society. And so it used to be all women 40 and above should get mammograms. But now studies have shown that in between the age of 40 and 44, if you don't have any increased risk, if you're what we call average risk of breast cancer, you can kind of have a discussion with your physician, but you don't have to start um, annual mammogram screening. But once you become 45 to 54, that's really the highest yield. And that's when I really advocate for women to get mammograms yearly. And then 55 and older, uh, studies have shown that it's safe to switch to every other year instead of uh, once a year, but with the caveat that you, know, you, it's you, you shouldn't really miss a year because if you miss a screening and it becomes four years, then you may, you may run into trouble. Right? But, and there's also been some controversy in terms of how long should we you know, screen for. And some people say after age 75, it's probably not worth it to screen, but I kind of individualize it based on my patient. And if they're a healthy 75 or a healthy 80 and you think they're going to live you know, 10 more years, then I think it's worthwhile to continue screening uh, with them. But if they're frail, if they're bed-bound, or if they're just sitting at home and they're not, you don't anticipate them surviving longer than 5, 10 years, then you probably don't need to worry about screening. And they may develop a breast cancer, but they probably won't die of breast cancer. They'll die with the breast cancer, and it won't, it won't cause them any problems. So in terms of colon cancer, so colon cancer is a little bit more complex, but overall, uh, they recommend starting screening at age 50. And really the gold standard for screening is colonoscopy. Um, yes, I know it's not fun, um, but if you're clear, then it's, you're good for 10 years. That's the good news, right? Um, but if you find anything abnormal, then if you have a polyp, a small polyp, then then you may, they may recommend repeat colonoscopy in a shorter interval, maybe five years or three years. However, there are what's called high-risk um, patients. So again, patients that have had previous cancer before or who've had large polyps or who has a strong family history, they really should start screening earlier. And the recommendation is starting at age 40 or 10 years before the first uh, relative that had um, uh, breast can uh, colon cancer. And the recommendation is every five years in, in, those, in those patients. There are some genetic um, syndromes that uh, significantly increase the risk of colon cancer, such as the familial adeno, um, adenomatous polyposis <coughs> or um, Lynch syndrome. And those really are fairly rare, but if you have patients with that, um, really they recommend screening as early as 10 to 12 years of age or 20 to 25 years of age for the Lynch syndrome. For inflammatory bowel disease, um, 
really there's no clear consensus in terms of when to start screening, but typically about eight to 10 years after their first diagnosis or their symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease, they should start screening because we know that the longer they go, the risk of cancer significantly increases. And they should get colonoscopies uh, with random biopsies every one to two years to make sure that there isn't any dysplasia or changes that may predispose to cancer. So really the two, I mentioned colonoscopy, but there, for those patients who don't really, you know, want to get a colonoscopy, probably the next best thing is what's called a FIT test. Um, basically, it's an immunochemical test. Uh, it's a stool test, and it's relatively newer. We used to recommend just doing fecal occult blood tests, but that has kind of fallen out, out of favor. You can see the, the major kind of societies have, have not recommended that anymore, just because the sensitivity and specificity is, is so low. But the FIT test is more sensitive and more accurate. And so um, in addition to colonoscopy, you can recommend yearly FIT tests. So what is a FIT test? Um, basically, it's, um, it's a test. They collect stool sample. They, they mix it in a vial with solution, and then they drop it into this, um, this monitor. And the good news is that it's very specific for human blood um, and for lower GI bleed. It's not affected by the food that they eat um, or animal products that they eat. Uh, usually requires only a few stool specimens. It's better, more sensitive than the older fecal occult blood test. False positive rate is low, um, and it's slightly more costly, but it's not that much more costly. It's about $25 or so for this test. So that's kind of the overview for screening. And I wanted to just, in the final few minutes, I wanted to talk about cancer therapy and just the overall, um, overall how I approach cancer. Now, um, you know, when I was growing up and studying about cancer, I used to think that cancer was, you know, one cell that got mutated and then just started to proliferate out of control. And I used to picture it kind of just, it's a local phenomenon. And at some point it develops mutations and then it starts to spread and metastasize to distant organs. But now we, you know, modern research is showing that that's not entirely true. And yes, it is, it does start with one cell that's acquires one, two, maybe three mutations, and eventually loses its ability to auto-regulate, and it grows. But what it does is it starts to incorporate the body's normal um, uh, support system to help it to grow. It starts acquiring blood vessels. It starts using the immune system to its advantage to kind of block the immune system so it's... it's um, so that it suppresses the immune system. And we also know that cancers, we used to think that it grows and grows and grows, eventually it kind of grows too big for its britches and then starts to spread. But we know that cancer actually spreads far earlier than we thought, uh, especially in pancreatic cancer. Very early in the course of pancreatic cancer, there are cancer cells already circulating throughout the bloodstream and other parts of the body. Now the good news is that most of these cells that are circulating never end up kind of metastasizing, never end up, you know, harboring, you know, harbor, you know, finding safe harbor in the lungs or the liver. But some of them will eventually, and we don't know when, and we don't know where, but that's kind of the mystery of, of cancer that we're trying to figure out now. How can we limit these cells from metastasizing and 
establishing a new home in a place where we don't want it to be. We also know that these tumor cells are not just clones of each other. And they're very, very complex, and they have what's called tumor heterogeneity. And so it may start out with one cancer, but that cancer may be what's called a cancer stem cell, and it may give rise to kind of progenitor cells that are slightly different, and those cells will, will divide and multiply. And we know that when we treat these cancers with, let's say, chemotherapy or radiation therapy, they may, they may respond, a majority of them may respond, but because they're different, there may be some chemo-resistant or radio-resistant cells that remain behind, and those cells will they may kind of be senescent for a little while, but eventually they will um, start growing again, and that's when we have uh, difficulty. That's why second and third line treatment really is difficult in, in, in cancer. So we have made a lot of advances um, in the treatment of cancer therapy, and really there are multiple modalities that we use to treat cancer. Surgery is just one of them, and I'm happy to say that surgery is becoming less and less important, although it still is important. But chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, and that's probably the most exciting one. That's when these, there's newer drugs that help kind of activate the body's own immune system to attack the cancers, and so that has shown some promise. But with all of these treatments, it's still what I call a very blunt instrument in dealing with cancer because yes, it does treat some cancer cells, but it still affects the normal cells as well. And there's a lot of toxicity, a lot of morbidity associated with it. And so we don't have a silver bullet. We don't have a miracle cure uh, for cancer. And I think ultimately we as clinicians, we can help maybe slow down the progression of cancer, maybe even get it to a point where we don't see any evidence of disease, but I still firmly believe that there's still so much we don't understand about cancer. There's still so much left to chance that we call, um, but really the only one that can truly heal someone from cancer, I think, is, is God, our creator. And so this is a passage that you know, Jesus was kind of speaking about um, that I thought would be relevant for, um, for this topic. And he was kind of talking about the law and sin uh, in our hearts. And, and I think in a lot of ways, leprosy was, was um, associated with sin in Bible times. And um, we can look at cancer through this lens as well, too. And he said, you know, if you look on a woman with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And he goes on to say, you know, if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. You know, if your right hand offend thee, cut it off. And my interpretation of this, and maybe you know, some scholars would agree as well, he wasn't advocating for surgery to treat uh, this condition. Um, and we know that because people didn't all of a sudden start plucking their eyes out or cutting off their hands after Jesus said this. But a lot of times we approach cancer the same way. We think, oh, we just need to cut it out. But really, cancer is a disease of the entire body. It's not just the disease of the breast. It's not just the disease of the skin. But it's a combination of your whole body, your lifestyle choices, the, your environment, your genetics, 
Um, a lot of things that you can control, a lot of things that you can't control. And I think it requires surgery on the heart. And again, as I said, only God can really treat. He's the only physician that can treat uh, and cure that. And so it goes back to the original question, why does this happen? Why is there cancer? Why do people get cancer? And um, I don't have the answer for you. Um, I don't know. But I do know that God's will for us is not to be sick. God's will for us is to be healthy. God's will for us is to be cancer-free, to live prosperous, healthy, happy lives, that we can be a light and a beacon to the rest of the world. But that being said, there will be people in this room who will be diagnosed with cancer at some point. It may be me. Um, hopefully not. But I think that's the reality if we look at it. And... and God's will, ultimate purpose, is not that our bodies be saved, but that our souls be saved. And I think one of the blessings, the silver linings of being able to treat someone and help someone with cancer, in, in contrast to someone with a heart attack who just suddenly dies, or maybe someone who's dying of dementia and Alzheimer's, where you can't really have a lucid conversation with them, Cancer patients, their mind is still intact. They know that they may have a finite amount of time left in their life here on Earth. And so it opens up the door for conversations with them. They come to you vulnerable. They come to you asking for help. And when you treat them with compassion, when you treat them with love, really you can show Christ's character and love to them. And you can give them the tools and the education to, you know, if it's God's will and if they are blessed to be given a second chance at life, then they can live a fuller and, and happier life um, um, after, after their, their treatment with cancer. And again, this is probably one of my favorite quotes. I tell this to my residents all the time. And, they say, and it says, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And again, I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir here. I know you guys are all excellent physicians, clinicians, um, friends, husbands, wives. But what this world needs is not smarter physicians, smarter surgeons, but more Christ-like physicians. Um, and so in summary, number one, education regarding cancer risk reduction, I think is probably the most important thing. And for me as a surgeon, I'm not on the, you know, on the um, front lines. It's the primary care physicians, um, preventive medicine physicians, uh, many of you in this room who are having that conversation with patients who can really make a difference. May maybe not on a population level, but for that individual patient, you may make a huge difference. And again, smoking, obesity, exercise, alcohol, diet, and, and getting a genetic history, a family history, those are very, very important, can go a long way in helping patients to hopefully never get cancer. But again, that approach should be with compassion. So I say compassion first, treat second, and then that opens the door to education. When they come with a cancer diagnosis, a lot of the times what I tell them goes in one ear and goes out the other. 
and they don't remember anything that I told them. All they really remember at the end is they, they say, thank you, you, you've helped me to feel better about cancer. I, you've, they, what they want to hear is that you're not going to die right now. You have time, and we have the tools, and we have the ability to treat you. Um, and so that's really all they're looking to hear. And so giving them that hope is, is probably the most important thing. And then once they get through that ordeal, then it opens a door for education. And trust me, they will grab onto the, the education, and they'll grab onto the health message. And they'll remember how you treated them as a physician um, and as a friend. So number two, early detection with screening saves lives. And studies have shown that it does improve breast cancer mortality and colon cancer mortality. Um, you just have to, you know, get it done. There's really no shortcuts. There's no other way to do it. Um, and I urge all of you in this room also to get screening if you haven't already. Be doers, not hearers only. And cancer affects the entire body. And so I want you to start thinking of cancer as a disease of the whole body. It's not just one area. It's not just the breast. And I think in medicine, unfortunately, you know, in, especially in the subspecialties, we've become physicians of body parts or organs. And we've lost the ability or the focus of being physicians of the whole body. And so I hope that's, you know, one thing that you can take away is to remember that. And cancer, behind the cancer is a human being and a person. And I think um, it's important to, to encourage them that treatment is effective. Even in stage four cancers, there are treatments that allow patients to be alive a long, long time. Now, the chance for cure is very, very minuscule. But in some cases, again, they can live with the cancer and they will die with the cancer and not of the cancer. But again, finally, I firmly believe that only God can truly cure um, the human condition and the, the ailment of cancer. It's a disease that affects not just organs, but it affects the cells, it affects the DNA. And that's something that's beyond my comprehension. And I think, um, unfortunately, because of sin and our condition, um, cancer is here to stay. But I think through that, we have opportunities to really reach out and help um, others really see um, that's, you know, the eternal, um, eternal perspective. And, you know, even when patients, you know, maybe aren't cured or when treatments fail, um, again, it is an opportunity to open the doors um, to talk about salvation and and broader things, and things not of this world, but of something greater. Um, because you know we have a privilege that in cancer patients, again, their mind is still usually very, very sharp. And that's all they need to make a decision for Christ. Um, they don't need strong bodies. Um, they don't need functioning livers. But all they need is just to make that decision. And so we can help facilitate that as physicians. And so this is a quote by William Osler, a famous um, internist. And he says, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician 
treats the patient who has the disease. I think it's true in leprosy in Jesus' time. I think it's true today in cancer. I think we should just remember that we are treating people. Um, And these are some of my friends who lost their lives far too early to cancer. And um, I think all of you, I think, you know, my experience is not unique. I know all of you probably have lost loved ones, friends, um, mothers, daughters, children. And so um, I think we can't forget about the human element um, when we're um, dealing with patients with with this uh, disease. And so I just want to leave you with this quote. Um, I want to thank you for what you do as physicians. Um, it's, it is a calling. Um, I have three children, and you know, I don't know if, I can't say for sure if I really want them to go into medicine because I know the sacrifice that it entails. Um, obviously, if, if they're called to do it and they want to do it, I, I would be the first to encourage them to do it. But what you all do as physicians is incredible. The sacrifices that you've made, no one will truly know Uh, maybe until we all get to heaven. But know that your your efforts um, have eternal ramifications. And so I wanted to leave you with that and, and thank you all for this time. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, Or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.